Hey there, and welcome to season two of Navigating the Pandemic, the show that explores COVID-19 and how it impacts our daily lives. I'm Kat, an incoming Master of Public Health candidate at Columbia University. As a reminder, this season is focused on the social determinants of health, health inequities, and COVID-19. In the last episode, we talked about healthcare systems resiliency and building back better in Latin America. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Dr. Bahuma Titanji, a medical doctor and clinical researcher. She recently co-authored an article in The Atlantic titled, The Pandemic is Following a Very Predictable and Depressing Pattern, which I'll link in the episode description. So on the show today, we'll discuss patterns of inequality in global disease response and coordinated action in the fight against COVID-19. So thank you so much for coming on the show today, Dr. Titanji. Thank you so much for having me. So I was wondering if you would open by sharing a little bit about your educational background, your current role, and your research interests. Yeah, absolutely. Would love to. I'm originally from, from Cameroon, which is where I did my medical training. And after working for a few years in, in general practice, I spent some time in the United Kingdom uh, doing a postgraduate training initially in international health at the School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and then subsequently obtaining a PhD in virology at University College London. In more recent years, I've been based at Emory University in Atlanta, where I initially came in to do uh, a residency in internal medicine and complete my clinical training. But after completing that clinical training, I stayed on to do a subspecialty training in infectious diseases. And I have just recently uh, completed the clinical part of my fellowship training, and I'm wrapping up with the research component of my fellowship training. And so my current role is an infectious diseases fellow at Emory University, and I will be starting on as faculty and transitioning to an assistant professorship role in the School of Medicine and staying at Emory. So in my day-to-day job, I am a physician scientist. So that means that I do see patients, mainly people who have infectious diseases conditions, uh, but I also do research. And my primary research focus has been in the area of HIV. That is really an incredible background. And I just want to say, go Eagles. I'm an Emory alum. So that's one fun thing that we share in common. Yay. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I was so impressed when I read that you have an MD, your diploma in tropical medicine, a master's in science and a PhD. You truly seem to have it all. And I really resonate with how these degrees translate to your work in marrying translational research and clinical practice. The pandemic has really highlighted that we need that in influencing health policy from a global health perspective. So as we dive into the interview, I was hoping that you'd speak to historical inequality and inaction in disease response. And as you discuss in your Atlantic piece, the pandemic isn't over just because high-income countries decide to lessen restrictions. So I was hoping that you would speak to the trend of infectious diseases persisting in low-middle-income countries and lapses of disease response and prevention by the Global North. Right. Thank you for that question. You know, before I get into the details of that, I'd like to say that one of the things that drew me to the field of infectious diseases was because it's one of the subspecialties that really directly connects 
a disease condition to the social determinants of health and um, has had a lot of impact on uh, the history of public health, a history from the moment that we started really studying public health as a discipline. And when you think about the historical challenges or kind of the historical examples in which, you know, there has been a failure to adequately address infectious diseases issues globally, there's so many that come to mind. And I think that although the pandemic has been something that we've all been living in the last two years, people fail to remember that this is not particularly a unique scenario that we've not witnessed before. I'll take the example of malaria, which uh, prior to the 19th century was endemic in many parts of Europe. And it took a concerted effort of, you know, public health and investment in vector control uh, to actually be able to eliminate malaria in many parts of the Western world and primarily in, in areas that are considered high income and high middle income settings. Today, malaria is primarily endemic in countries that are poor and you know, 90% of the countries that carry the endemicity of malaria are in sub-Saharan Africa. And the main reason why malaria still continues to kill half a million people every year, most of those being children, is largely because there has been a failure in investing in the strategies that we know work to actually control and potentially eliminate and even eradicate diseases like malaria. So that is the first example. You know, the second example will be that of HIV. It's really well documented that when antiretroviral therapy became more widely available and combination antiretroviral therapy was demonstrated to be a life-saving intervention for people living with HIV in the mid-90s, it took another 10 years for those very medications to become accessible on a wide scale and low and middle income countries. And what that translated into was that the delay in getting life-saving medications to poorer parts of the world led to millions of avoidable deaths and also millions of infections which could have been avoided if those treatments had been made more widely available. And the reasons that fueled the inequity in terms of access to antiretroviral therapy for HIV in the mid-90s and early 2000s are very similar to some of the reasons behind the inequities that have plagued vaccine access for COVID-19 and also access to therapeutics and testing for COVID-19. For example, when you look at the case of HIV and antiretroviral drug therapy, a lot of the lack of access was driven by pharmaceutical companies holding on to the patents that they had on antiretroviral therapies and making generic production not possible. And as such, many countries just could not afford to access those medications for the millions that, that needed them. And we have seen similar scenarios with that when it comes to COVID-19 vaccines with issues around patent waivers, which have prevented low and middle income countries from actually establishing local production of mRNA vaccines in low and middle income countries. So I think history has taught us that when an infectious disease outbreak 
that is where inequity, unfortunately, rears its ugly head and really shines. And we have to try to learn from the errors of the past and really build on that to ensure that we don't keep repeating them over and over again. And unfortunately, that hasn't been the case so far with the COVID-19 pandemic. Absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm very glad that you shared these historical examples of malaria and HIV from the purview of inequality and the social determinants of health and how they translate to what we see today with COVID, because I, that, I don't think that's something that is at the forefront of a lot of people's minds who are from Western or high-income countries. And it is really critical to COVID response, but also future pandemic prevention. And in your article, you have a quote by Peter Sands of the Global Fund that I think sadly encapsulates a lot of what you just shared. He says, by epidemic, we actually mean a pandemic that no longer kills people in rich countries. And when I read that, I just, it, I just had to stop for a moment and let that settle in. Um, and I also want to add that this came into my mind as you were speaking. I think part of this inaction narrative is people ignoring the problem because it is not impacting them directly. But I think it's also minimizing how bad things actually are. Um, For example, for months, researchers have talked about the African paradox with COVID, which is this narrative that says COVID has been less severe in a lot of sub-Saharan African countries compared to other parts of the world. But I want to say last week, Nature released an article that was showing Zambian morgue data uh, found 90% of deceased people that were tested at a Lusaka facility during pandemic surges were positive for COVID. So this just starts to hint at COVID's true toll in Africa and, and what we'll continue to see without proper pandemic response and preparedness. Absolutely. And I think that just to add to to that point, I think what often gets lost when people report either on the relative sparedness of in the pandemic of, say, for instance, that has been experienced by some sub-Saharan African countries, is they forget that the pandemic has ripple effects beyond COVID. And we often do not talk enough about how incredibly disruptive and a pandemic that has been ongoing for two years has been for healthcare systems that are very fragile and are already dealing with significant burdens of other infectious diseases, problems like malaria, HIV, TB, diarrheal diseases in children, et cetera. So when you think about the disruption of COVID and what the fallout from that, it it just becomes a lot more obvious that there is an excess mortality that may be indirect. People may not be dying from COVID-19, but there has been an impact on fewer patients with HIV getting timely diagnosis, of people being able to get timely diagnosis of tuberculosis and accessing treatments for that, of you know, bed net distributions for the prevention of malaria, et cetera, which has impacted on the health of the population and is reflected by excess mortality in all of these other infectious diseases conditions. So 
the the myth that you know Africa and some other low income countries may have been spared in the COVID pandemic because the mortality levels may not be quite as high as those recorded in some high income countries just really minimizes the issue just because we're not taking into account all the factors that are at play. Absolutely. Thank you for framing COVID's larger disruption on health systems and disease response, both directly and indirectly related to COVID, and really drawing attention to why this myth about mortality levels is so harmful. And on that note, I was wondering if you would be able to build on this larger question and share your thoughts on why the pandemic isn't over and certain countries can't choose, shouldn't just choose to walk away from pandemic response and pandemic preparedness. And then my second leg of that question is to add why it's in the best interest of all countries to continue the global fight against COVID regardless of what their case counts or mortality rates are right now, you know, how should we be framing this in the long term for everybody across the globe? Right. I I think that that's an excellent question and a very topical one, especially considering the phase of the pandemic where we are in with lots of countries rolling back pandemic protections and lots of countries reopening and and declaring the pandemic essentially over and getting back to life as normal. I think we often forget how interconnected the world really is. And we also very quickly forget once we've weathered a crisis, how bad that crisis was when it was actually happening. I think it's important just to remind the audience that Omicron as a variant, which has had devastating effects in the last four to five months, only emerged at the end of November of 2021. And a huge reason as to why we saw the emergence and the broad circulation, as well as the impact of that variant of concern in terms of its impact on healthcare systems and on mortality across the world, was largely because we were still in a phase of the pandemic where most people did not have access to vaccines and we still have a huge proportion of the global population that is still not vaccinated against COVID-19. And that was a striking reminder of just how interconnected the world really is because when the variant was initially identified in Southern African countries, in Botswana and South Africa, immediately the response by a lot of Western countries was to introduce travel bans and block the borders. If countries were really able to feel like, you know, we can deal with this as a country-only problem and self-isolate, they would not have felt the need to have that knee-jerk reaction of closing their borders when we were alerted that there was a new variant of concern that was rapidly spreading. We remember that interconnectedness when we were faced with a crisis and people unfortunately responded by travel bans, which we know don't work. But as we come out of the Omicron crisis, we're very quickly forgetting the lessons that we ought to have learned through that phase of the pandemic. All of this to say, and again, to emphasize that 
we live in an in interconnected world and it's not because something is happening a thousand miles away from you that means that that particular issue does not affect your health and especially when it comes to the global COVID-19 pandemic anything that's happening in other regions if you have particularly the subject of low rates of vaccination in sub-Saharan Africa, that essentially provides the optimum environment for new variants to emerge. So it is in everyone's interest to ensure that even those who are not in countries or in environments that we feel are in close geographic proximity to whatever your wealthier bubble is, it is important that you ensure that everyone everywhere is able to access those same testing capacities to identify new variants, the same vaccine access to provide immunity to pro protect against infections and to potentially slow down the emergence of, of new variants of concern. So that's really what, what you know, should be at the forefront of how we kind of think about the next step of the pandemic and how we address that. And then coming to the second part of your question where you, you ask about what I think the global health response should actually look like in terms of really having a response that is global in the true sense as opposed to just being inward looking. What I would say to that is if you declare that the pandemic is over within your borders and you're not concerned about making sure that the pandemic is truly over for everyone. Know that the moment that you have the emergence of a new variant outside of your borders, that sense of I am safe or kind of my borders are safe will immediately experience disruption. And if we don't address the pandemic from a global perspective, we essentially are going to prolong that pandemic for everyone. It's estimated that the cost of the pandemic now is, has been over $20 trillion globally. And that cost is set to rise. But when you think about how much global investment would actually be needed to make sure that vaccine access is equitable in every country, that countries have access to treatments and to testing strategies, we are looking at a fraction of the amount of money that the global economy is losing the more this pandemic runs out. And this should really be an incentivizing for the powers that be, for people that make the decisions and actually have the power to dictate where funding goes, to make addressing the global pandemic from a global perspective and with a global plan an absolute top priority as we move forward. Absolutely. Thank you for framing what our next steps should be and what an equitable global response is. And just to continue on your point on why we need to end COVID globally, I really appreciated the framing of your article and highlighting that wealthy countries can stockpile vaccines and supplies. And once incidence goes down, politicians and citizens can, you know, call it quits with pandemic response. But like you said, we are in this globalized world and new variants will continue to adapt and continue to spread and continue to harm people in countries that don't have the equitable access to vaccines and supplies. I think so many public health leaders right now are yelling that 
lulls in the pandemic are really the time to prepare, not to just call it quits. So I just want to thank you again for sharing your insights on historical pandemic response and reminding us about the indirect effects of COVID-19 and finally closing the show with the role of globalization and disease spread. Your voice is such a powerful reminder to not forget the lessons that we ought to have learned as we move forward with pandemic response and preparedness. So thank you again so much for coming on the show, Dr. Tatanji. And I will make sure to link your um, Atlantic article in the episode description. Thank you so much for the invitation and uh, thank you for having me. And it was a real privilege to be able to use this platform to continue to amplify the message that we live in a global and interconnected world and the pandemic isn't over just because you think it's over in your little bubble. It's over when it's over for everyone in the world that we live in. A collective push for global vaccine equity will help us circumvent unnecessary suffering and deaths. It'll protect economies and mitigate against new virus variants. I've included some great resources on these points in the podcast description. Thank you so much for listening and whatever platform you're listening on, turn on your notifications for this podcast and share it out with people. As always, stay safe and stay well. All the best, Kat.